Let's stand up and get started together. And since it's the last day of celebrating Theophany, we'll sing the what's called the Apolitikion, the main hymn for Theophany. And um, I will I will sing loudly, and then you can do every other word or every third word, or you can just hum along if you uh, don't know what to say. But one of the reasons why you find the the hymns sung so frequently in the services is because one of the most practical ways of learning is through repetition. You know, when something is important, people would say, like, I hear people say, use a, the idea of a vain repetition sometimes. But the problem isn't repetition, it's vain repetition. It's when the repetition is vain, you're just doing it just to do it. But I always tell people, how many times are you going to say I love you to someone that you care about and then finally get to the point where you say, oh, I've told you I loved you enough. You know what I mean? You don't, if you love someone, you're going to continue to express that to them. If something is valuable and important, we continue to express it. And so we do it from the heart. You know, that's that's what allows it to be uh, for us to overcome the the vanity of repetition. You know, we're not trying to like, uh, I think St. Isaac the Syrian said, I'm not, I'm not trying to count milestones, but to enter the bridal chamber, meaning to enter into union with God. I'm not trying to count milestones, so it's not about... The idea is we do something so much that we can't keep track of it anymore. Same with good deeds and acts of love. When you've been a really resentful, angry person for many years and you start struggling to do kind things, you can count on one hand how many nice things that you did on a given day or maybe how many not mean things you did. But when your heart changes and you start to love freely, then you love without keeping track. You know what I mean? When you start forgiving and forgiving others, 70 times 7, you stop doing the math. You're not worried about so I'm creating a I'm paint, painting a picture for you just about why why there there are some things that are seemingly repetitive in the church that are actually deeply meaningful. Can we use the books that are outside? Can you use the liturgy books? Don't, don't we have the Prococcus book out there? With we the don't have the this hymn. Oh, okay. No, this one it will be written on the book of your heart eventually. Okay. But I always tease people like after about three four years you'll go, I know that one. And then after about seven, ten years, you say, I have that one memorized now. Well, I might know so, it is after two weeks of watching it. But I saw yeah. the first week, I was all great. It was, they do it in English, then they did it in Greek. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, well, we're, that's for the paraclesis you're talking about. So we're just going to do the hymn for Theophany. So let's go ahead and do that. When thou, O Christ our God, was transfigured on the mountain... Thou didst reveal thy glory to thy disciples in proportion as they could bear it. Let thine everlasting light also enlighten us sinners through the intercessions of the Theotokos. O thou bestower of 
glory to Thee. Christ is in our midst. He is our Thank you. Okay. Would someone like to hand out, pass around the books? We're going to talk about the intercessions of the saints today. First, and we're going to end a little early today because I'm going to do a little baptism prep time with Jamie and Heidi. Now, the section that we're doing is called Fervent Intercessors. Can you guys tell me what page it is in here? 123. 123. Fervent Intercessors. They have two more pages? Yeah, the new book has two more pages. Yeah, interesting. Well, I know one of my friends got the new version, and he's been reading through it. And he says that there's some little updates and things, and so maybe yeah. with some of the... Well, they expanded some of the, I think, some of the... Uh, um, quotes and things like that? Quotes and the, yeah. the Father Speaks stuff. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. You know, it's... Yeah, some stuff there. I think there's an added page at the beginning mm-hmm. in the uh, introduction of the book. Okay. So that probably throws it off, too. So... We just talked about, we've, we've been talking about Mary, the Theotokos, quite a bit last week for our session. And then of today's homily. And so one of the things that you'll notice in the church is that we seek the intercessions of the saints. We see that we have, uh, there, there's continuity between those who are in heaven and those who are on earth, and we actually share in communion with them, and so we ask for their um, for their prayers. And so let's comment on that a little bit and discuss. So while our Lord was hanging from the cross, pouring out his life for the salvation of the world, he looked down upon his pure mother and the apostle John and said to the Holy Virgin, Woman, be- behold thy son. And to John, he said, Behold thy mother, in John 19. Then from this time forth, the virgin maiden who had, been, who had given birth to God in the flesh was to be the mother of his disciples. Just as Eve was the mother of all the living, so the virgin is called the mother of all Christians and the personification of the Holy Mother Church. St. Cyprian of Carthage, an early, I think, 4th century Christian, he said something very strong. He said, no one can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. And so the church has always been looked at like a mother, you know, like a womb, you know, a a place of nurture, a place of comfort. And the mother of God, the Theotokos, is the personification of that. She in in herself is an image of what the church is. So she's called the mother of all Christians. To those who are united to her son through holy baptism, she extends her motherly embrace. And as our mother, the all-holy Theotokos intercedes for us before the throne of her son. 
As our fervent intercessor and constant advocate before the Creator, the Virgin never tires and never fails to remember her spiritual children in her prayers. When we are at our lowest ebb and feel as though we've been forsaken by all the world, we may take courage in the fact that Our Lady is ever ready to come to us and intercede for us, winning greater strength for all who call upon her Son in faith. There are times, maybe you've experienced this in your own life, there are times when you you feel like your strength, your spiritual strength is waning, and you, you can't do it on your own. Like I, I, I can barely even pray. And so you ask someone to pray for you. You ever done that? Please pray for me. We're having a really hard time. Please pray for me. Because you can't muster up the strength. You feel too weak. You need support. You need the help of others. And no one considers that to be an aberration of the Christian faith. No one looks at you and says, oh, you're so weak. Why would you ask anyone to pray for you? Like I said earlier this morning, you wouldn't take a little kid who hurt, hurt himself, even if he has hurt feelings, who's running up to his mother and say, nope, don't go to your mom. Just pray to Jesus. You know what I mean? It's so natural. For us to turn to one another. And sometimes the God-man feels accessing Christ, even Christ in his, in his humanity. His humanity is so, so perfect and so pure. Even though his presence is really so immediate and direct, it feels out of, just out of reach for us. And so when we feel like we're losing confidence, sometimes we turn to someone else who we think has a stronger faith than us, at least right now, has a little more strength. And that person lifts us up. I mean, we used to use the language, lift me up in prayer. You know what I mean? And one of my favorite little teachings, I gave a a mini homily during... uh, I think it was the last week or the week before about the intercessions of the saints and intercessory prayer. And you could say on the one hand, why would we even ask God for anything? He knows our needs. Why would we say anything at all? And there is a place for saying those prayers. Like, I don't even know what I need. You know more than I do. So I'm just going to be quiet. But also, in that we have free will, we have the responsibility to express our desires. To express our hopes and our wants and our fears before God who knows what we need, but he's willing for us to admit that need. It's like he's constantly standing at the door and knocking, waiting for us to let him in. He could knock down the door and save us. But he has dignified us with with even the ability to invite him. Who are we to invite God into our lives? Who are we to invite the one apart from whom we have no life? You know, what a strange thing. But it's because God respects us so much. 
And I was thinking about it this way. When a, when a child does something for the first time, maybe a, I don't know, I was thinking about a metaphor the other, the other day where it's like a child leans down to lift up a heavy um, object and the dad kind of gets sneaks in underneath or from behind and helps him lift it, but the child doesn't even know. Know that the father's helping. And he goes, look what I did. And the father goes, you did. He doesn't say, no, it wasn't really you. I did it. You're just kind of an idiot. You're an idiot because you think that you're strong, but you're actually not. That's just a big delusion. And you can't do anything because you're so weak and I'm strong. You know what I mean? A loving father would never do that. Say, look, you did. Do it again. I mean, I remember when I was learning how to ride a bike and my dad was holding my bike seat next to me and I felt like I was flying. He was keeping me upright for a long time, longer than I realized, until finally he let go. And then the interesting thing is, even once he let go, it was like I could still feel his hand on the seat. My confidence came from that. It was when I lost, when I, when I disconnected myself from that kind of confidence that I uh, went beyond my ability and <laughs> fell over and things like that. But I think that's how God is with us. You know, when we come to him in prayer, of course he knows all of our needs. But when we intercede for other people out of a love for them, he looks at us and he goes, yes, that's right. It's good for you to love another person and to ask me to intervene in their lives. Because you're right, I love you and I love them and I want to work in their lives and I want, to, I want you to invite me into your life because I care about you. You know, we approach it like, like, a, like a child. We're so sophisticated sometimes. We think, you know, we've, we've got our heads wrapped around everything and we don't. I mean, the image of, of parenthood is just such a, a beautiful and direct and immediate of and helpful metaphor for our relationship with God in many ways. Now, you could say, yes, but God is not like any human parent and he's uncreated and so on. Yeah, that, those, that's also true. That is true. But uh, so when we ask for God's help and then when we ask for other people's help, it's, it's a natural expression of our need for God and one another God didn't create us to to need him despite one another, but to enter into communion with him and one another. Let me read a quote for you. I was telling myself yesterday when I wrote this down that I might uh, use it in catechism, and this is a good time to use it. One of the saints we commemorate today is named Dorotheos of Gaza. I highly recommend reading the writings of St. Dorotheos. I'll write it for you. He's also known as Abba Dorotheos. Abba is a term of endearment for like a wise elder. It means father. So um, he's a saint, but often lovingly referred to as Abba Dorotheos. Of Gaza. And he has a collection of writings called um, Discourses Discourses and Sayings. Courses. 
And it's, it's one of the best books that anyone could ever read about the spiritual life. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty readable. It's pretty accessible. I mean, it was written by a monastic. But he was, he, when he joined the monastery, he was known for having a weaker constitution and not being able to fast as rigorously as other people and stay up as late as other people. And so his elder basically told him, here, I'll write a little bit. I mean, I'll read a little bit of my notes. Um, that he was to give himself over to the, the inner asceticism, the inner struggle of the heart. Because there were certain things he was physically incapable of doing. And the leaders of the monastery saw that. And they respected that. So he was to give himself over to the inner struggle of the heart in order to acquire the most precious virtues, humility, obedience, compunction, compassion for all. And the constant remembrance of God. And he learned that whosoever succeeds in denying his own will has reached the true place of rest. But this is one of the teachings I was talking about how our lives are intertwined and how we benefit from one another's prayers. How God honors and respects our intercessions for one another. I'm going to read a quote to you. So St. Dorotheos taught this to his monastic brotherhood. He said, imagine a circle traced on the earth. So like when you take a stick and you draw something in the dirt. Imagine a circle traced on the earth. That is a line drawn in the ground with a circumference all the way around and a center. Imagine that this circle is the world. The center is God. And the rays, you know what rays are like spokes coming out from the center. The rays are men's different paths or ways of living. When the saints desiring to draw near to God move toward the center of the circle, in the measure to which they penetrate further in closer to the center, the nearer they draw to one another. And the closer they come to one another, the closer they are to God. And you understand that it is the same in reverse. When one turns from God to go outward, it is clear that the more we move away from God, the further we are from one another. And the further we are from one another, the further we are from God. Isn't that a beautiful image? I mean, very simple, but beautiful. And uh, I always go back to this idea that I, that I came to when I was studying Bible and theology in college. It just shocked me when I realized that in, from the time of the early church, that those who decided to bind themselves to Christ, bind themselves to Christ, became inextricably bound to one another. They, they loved Christ so much that they had to be bound to one another out of love for Christ. And that's one of the things that led me to orthodoxy because I thought Christians are not like that. 
They're all better than one another. They're disagreeing or, you know, we're the, we're mystically one. What does that even mean? Mystically one. You know what I mean? If Christ is one, then the church is one. I've got to figure this out. How can we be inextricably bound to one another? And that's why the preservation of the unity of the faith has been such an important task of Christians throughout all the ages. Like those Orthodox who are yelling at each other, you know, during the ecumenical gathering to work out their differences, to preserve the unity of the faith. Not so that one could say, I'm right and you're wrong, but so that they could come to the conclusion that it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit, like in Acts 15. Anyway, so continuing on, since the time of the Protestant Reformation, however, much of Western Christendom has either ignored or rejected outright the intercession of the Mother of God and the saints for those on earth. In doing so, Protestants have forfeited one of the greatest privileges of being Christians, the Apostle James enjoins us to pray for one another. And in the same verse, he explains why. He says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16. It's ironic that those who oppose the idea of seeking the intercession of the saints in heaven have no objections to asking ordinary sinful Christians to pray for them. But let us consider whose prayers, according to St. James are more effectual. You know, the effectual prayer of a righteous man, he says, is it those Christians still alive on earth struggling with their own sins and problems or those who have gone on to be with God and are recognized by the church for their holiness of life? Those who have become like, you know, bright lights in the noetic firmament, you could say. The saints are those who have passed through this life in victorious faith and now behold the face of Christ united with him in love. They exist in a state of perfect accord with his holy will. Thus, we may be assured that when we pray for, excuse me, we may be assured that when they pray for us who are on earth, their supplications are in complete harmony with the purposes of God. No longer capable of being deceived by the wiles of the devil. They form a mighty army joining their will to the will of God and standing firm with us as we fight the good fight of faith. If God hears our prayers, the prayers of ordinary Christians embroiled in the trials of life, and he certainly does, then how much more does he heed the intercessions of those who have pleased him most, whom he's called to be with himself in heaven? Matthew twenty-two thirty-two says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And in Christ, death is no longer the impenetrable barrier which separates us from those who have gone before us. That's why, you know, like in the lives of the saints, I've mentioned many times, and I probably will mention 30 or 40 more times, you know, um, the book called The Garden of the Holy Spirit about the, the life of St. Yaakovos of Evia. Evia. Um, and in the lives of the saints in general, you'll, you'll identify that there is a, such a thin a veil between temporality and eternity, really, between heaven and earth. The only veil that is really set 
that becomes a, a very thick one <laughs> is the one within us, within, within our hearts that prevents us from, from seeing or perceiving what is truly there. So the writer of the Hebrews affirms that the saints in heaven are aware of what's going on in our lives. Go to Hebrews 12.1 and you'll read, Wherefore, seeing we are also, excuse me, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's why the churches are filled with iconography to remind us of the great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on that have gone before us and whose examples in drawing near to Christ we have we have to follow. The saints not only cheer us on as we run the race of life, they actively participate in our race as they intercede for us, winning greater strength for all who battle evil. And our All-Holy Lady, the Theotokos, stands at the head of this chorus of saints and remains for us on earth as our steadfast protectress and constant advocate before the Creator. And you hear this in the Paraclesis service. Steadfast protectress of Christians, constant advocate before the Creator, despise not the cry of us sinners, but in thy goodness come speedily to help us who call on thee in faith. Hasten to hear our petition and intercede for us, O Theotokos, for thou dost always protect those who honor thee. So one of the things I want to say to you as those who are exploring orthodoxy, is one thing to start venerating icons, which we all, I mean, if you want to be an orthodox Christian, then you, veneration of icons is, is a matter of fact for us. People died in order to preserve the preservation of icons and what they represent, so that we could, through, through the physical veneration of icons, we are bearing witness to our belief in the incarnation of God. So, it's not an option. And neither really is the, the seeking of the intercessions of the saints. You know, they're, they're, as you're pursuing orthodoxy, there is a deepening that needs to take place, but there isn't much room for, I'm not into that, with regard to aspects of orthodoxy. Like we've been saying the paraclesis, it's called the paraclesis is a word which means like a comfort the, the seeking of comfort. Have you guys ever heard the term paraclete? Yes. Growing up, paraclete is in Greek, parakletos means like comforter. It's used in reference to the Holy Spirit a lot. By the Holy Spirit. So yeah, yeah, in St. Paul. And so, um, but it's a service of seeking consolation and comfort from the Mother of God. And it's prescribed to be chanted 14 days in a row during the Dormition fast, during the, the first 14 days, no, well, 13, because on the eve of the feast, we do the uh, Vespers. But for two weeks, essentially, we, the church sets this before us to do. And it's not for just people who like that service. You know what I mean? Orthodoxy is not about what, I, what a friend has referred to as cafeteria Christianity. You're going to take a little bit of that, but not that. I think you might have used that term when we were talking. And I've, I've heard other people use it too, but it's true. I mean, it's like, I want all of Christ and therefore all of the church. 
not just what I, what I want. I remember a real turning point in my own life was when I realized I don't want what I want anymore. I don't want what I want. I want what, what you want, God. And that's, that's, that's a huge change of heart. I mean, it's really hard to do that. It's, and it's hard to say it and actually mean it. <laughs> because the only way to mean it is to live it out. And through trust. And it takes a lot of time to develop that kind of trust. You know? A lot of people who find their way to the Orthodox Church are seeking some kind of correction or healing. Usually a bit of both. And they're... They're also waiting to get hurt again. You know, there's a lot of tentativeness. What if, uh, what if Father Jeremiah looks at me the wrong way? Finally, he sees me as I really am, and he stops caring about me. He claims to, to want to love me even despite my sin, like Christ does. But what about that one thing that's really going to disgust him? And what's going to cause me, you know, the, father, the, the priest to finally turn against me or hurt me? You know what I mean? And then, and then where will I go? You know? Or when will I fail to the point where there's no recovery? Now, if you study the teachings of the church in the life of the saints, you'll notice that as long as you, you're seeking to, re, you know, repentance... No matter how many times you fall down, you can get up. It's when you refuse to, to get up and you tell God now that you can't save me. That's when you can't be saved. When you look at God square in the face and you say, even you can't save me. And that's what the fathers of the church consider to be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin is to tell God that you, even you don't have the ability to save me because at that point you're saying I refuse to be saved. Now, I'm going back to this idea of it taking time to learn how to trust. You know, I've I've talked to many people who have said it's orthodoxy in some ways is like too good to be true. <laughs> and my spiritual father would even say He's a very godly, saintly man. Like you just have to, you just see him, and you just want to be near him. He's this wise, old, godly man, and uh, but he even tells new people who are inquiring into orthodoxy at his parish. He's like, you might really like me now, but it's only a matter of time before I do something that upsets you or disappoints you, and you need to realize that the the church is bigger than me. You know what I mean? I'm not the embodiment of it. So, and I've even had people like tell me that they thought I was frustrated with them and I didn't even know it. So all of you forgive me if I've ever done anything like that. I used to be a drummer. I used to play drums growing up. And so the world is a drum set for me still. It's like, a, it must be, it's kind of a boy thing. Is it only a boy thing? No? Okay. But at least, I mean, for me, I mean, so everything is a drum set. And if, if you get, if you get the, the turn signal going on in the car, you know what I mean? It's just like, so I'm always, I'm kind of tapping, and especially when I'm concentrating, 
every once in a while. Now, I try to use my prayer rope when I'm talking with people to keep me, because I'm doing something pious. But, but I've noticed like one time, uh, I, sometimes I'll tap my fingers while I'm listening to people. I'll do little patterns and things. And someone once told me, and I had no idea, so sweetly said to me, I thought you were getting really like impatient with me because I was talking so much. And I was like, I had no idea. So anyway, so, you know, my point is that people will, we will disappoint one another accidentally or on purpose, or as my son likes to say, it was accidentally on purpose. (laughs) Nice try, buddy. (laughs) Nine-year-old. Um, but uh, but Christ will never fail you. And that's one of the things that's so important. I like to call it kind of genius, the genius behind the church. Is that no matter what happens to Father Jeremiah, the living tradition of the church will remain. Like the liturgy will be the liturgy. The services will be the services of the church. There will be a ground for us to stand on. So even if I fell into some, God forbid, some massive scandal, or even if I was falsely accused like St. Nectarios and you know, cast away to some foreign land, and you were tempted to despair, because how could something like this happen? We know that uh, God will never leave us or forsake us, and the church, which is the body of Christ, while it can have corrupt people in it, it can't be corrupted. Does that make sense? There's an objective reality to what the church is that grants a stability that makes it more than just a sum of the parts of it, more, more than just the people who are. I mean, we, we are integrated, we're engrafted into the church, which is so precious for us. But the, the, the identity of the church and the integrity of it definitely does not depend on me. As a, you know, as a person. So now something wonderful does happen, though, when we do take our faith seriously. We get to participate in the work that God is doing in each other's lives. And God is so loving and so humble that he allows me to even think that I'm helping you at times. You know, Father Jeremiah said something that was really neat and helpful. It's like, I've learned to say, I don't even care what I said. You know what I mean? I just, I want you to know that it, like, if any truth is being spoken to you and any healing is taking place, it's not because of, it's not, it's not without me, but it's not just because of me. It's because of God. It's like anytime anything good or wonderful or true that brings hope and healing takes place, it's always God breaking through, breaking through the chinks of our armor, you know, the hardness of our hearts. And, uh, he loves us enough to, to allow us to participate even in the saving work that he's doing. Someone, one of my favorite little stories. Have I, get, have I ever told you guys about the man who went to visit St. Paisios? Some of you who have been around for a while have heard it. But I'll tell you it again. I'm afraid in these sessions I repeat some of the same stories. But if I repeat it three or four times, then maybe you'll remember it. But there's a famous contemporary saint, Saint Paisios, who was known for being uh, like charismatic, you know, f- like grace-filled and uh, insightful. 
he could see someone and know what was wrong with them. And through his prayers, many people experienced miraculous healings. And so this man was going to visit St. Paisios, and he was being hosted by a monk, and this was on, on Mount Athos. So they were going to the little, kind of like a little, like a small hut where St. Paisios lived. And the monk who was taking the man to see St. Paisios said, ask him anything you want, but just don't ask him about the miracles. Don't ask him how he does the miracles or anything like that. Okay, I won't. So they got up there and there's a line of people and they see this little, this little sprightly, energetic old man smiling and cracking jokes and giving people little sweets, you know, and, and cups of water and having people sit around on logs and talking with them and just not what he thought, you know, that, that uh, sober-minded monastic elder would be like, sit down, my child. Take life a little more seriously. You know what I mean? That kind of, you know, foreboding. What he saw was joy, which surprised him. And then the elder would spend a little time, St. Paisios, they call him, you know, Elder Paisios at that time, a little time with people, answering some questions, and then having them move along and have a little, a little uh, rest before they left. And he finally got up to see the elder. And the first thing that came out of his mouth, how do you do the miracles? Because he had heard about just all the miracles. Healing from cancer, healing from illnesses of all kinds, healing from depression and anxiety, you know, drug addiction, on and on. How do you do the miracles? And the elder said, my child, I don't perform any miracles. The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does. And you leave it at that. You don't say, well, why does he do it through you then? Or, you know, no, that doesn't matter. That's not what matters. What matters is that it is, it's the Holy Spirit. And what matters even more is that we trust in God rather than putting him to the test. Because a greater miracle, a miracle that's greater than the resurrection from the dead and the healing of cancers and illnesses and anxieties and addictions, the, great, the greatest miracle is that a person comes to understand that he or she can be loved by God and chooses to receive that love. You know, what does that mean? You could say, Father, what does that even look like? That's what we're working on in the church together for all of our lives and then throughout eternity. But I've noticed that there is a, a lot of what, what I might call existential dread in this age that we live in. A lot, of, a lot of people are struggling. I mean, look, we have identity issues. Everyone, people are trying to change their identity. We've, we've come to, to hate who, who we are come to despise, we think that we were somehow a mistake. And the only way to fix that mistake is to change our identity. You know what I mean? Rather than turning to God. And part of the reason is because we've been 
taught that God doesn't like you. You know what I mean? We've been told that God would reject you because look at you. Now we've convinced ourselves of that and we've turned God into something that he's not in our minds. But a lot of people are fleeing from that version of God. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a deep issue that, that, that a lot of us have that is slowly being healed. And uh, I, wish, I wish the Orthodox experience of God's love is something that we could package and give away, but we can't. We can only accept it ourselves, strive to be transformed by it. And in some little way, if you and I are being transformed by receiving, humbly receiving the love of God, you know, standing before him saying, who am I even that God would know my name, let alone reach down and touch me in some way. It's through that humble acceptance of the humble love of God that we can only really love other people. You know what I mean? Because then we can love them without an agenda. And we can pray for them like St. Paisios prayed for them. He wasn't worried about whether or not a miracle would take place. Should I pray? I'm nervous about praying for this person because what if God doesn't heal them? He trusted in God. You know, God was stronger and greater than him. Anyway, I'm rambling but I just wanted to make some comments about uh, the place of prayer and commenting on the human identity and our, the trust that we ultimately that we come to develop, which is in God experienced through the church. That feels like it happens uh, dis- despite us sometimes, but it's definitely not personality dependent. You know, Father James used to like to say that the church is not a personality cult. You know, so, and I pray that if our, if our community were to ever become like a personality cult, then I pray that God would grant me an early death or reassign me to another church. Because I do not want that to happen. I wouldn't. Or if it ever starts turning that way, then you'll start realizing what a mess I am. And I'll start giving like crummy homilies and not making sense. And then you'll be like, Ooh, the church must be more than this. Yeah, I should be on like a little zip, a little zip line or something coming into the church. I did run once. I did run once with my vestments on and the my felonium, the cape, like really, like kind of. I did it for a couple of kids to make them smile, and uh, I, you know, they did have a kind of a superhero effect. <laughs> but no, there will be no um, raising or lowering, no zip lines, and no fog machines. Although we have a kind of a smoke machine, but not a fog machine. It's called the sensor. So, yeah, no. You know, I was pl- I used to be in a band a long time ago, and I played. We played secular and Christian venues because we were Christians, but we were kind of a crossover band. You know what I mean? We weren't like super pushy. So we could get away with playing like in a, in a pub or a bar or a secular venue or at a church. And uh, 
One time we played at this church, they had the fog machine going so much that we couldn't see our instruments anymore. <laughs> like, we were playing some pretty hard music, I mean, technical. And I looked down and was like, I can't see anything. It was pretty funny. That hasn't happened to me in church yet where it's so smoky that I can't read my service book. Well, we have, I'm going to give us about 10 more minutes to cover something else before we conclude early for today. I want to talk about, um, I've got these practical tips and popular topics. Um, And I want to talk about why in the world do we kiss the hand of the priest? Have I talked to you guys about that recently? I talked about the cassock. Why do you wear that black cassock a while back? But um, this is just a short one, but it's helpful because that is one thing that people, they're just not used to in our culture. I was talking to a man from Lebanon who said, it's not uncommon for men who are buddies just to hold hands at times when they're just walking down the street or, you know, for physical affection. It's just something that's, we've sexualized everything in our culture, unfortunately. So to touch, to kiss, to anything, it's like, where is this going to lead? No, but that's not how it is. I mean, that's not, I mean, when Christ reached out to touch someone, he didn't touch them to take something from them or to turn them into an object of pleasure or anything like that. He did it to, to, to show like, that you are worthy of being touched, that I do love you. you know? there, is a, there is a place for proper touch, and that needs to be reclaimed. And that's something that actually, through all the physicality that is present in Orthodox worship, the, the restoration of the senses should be taking place. The, the purpose of touch, of coming into contact, of kissing, of holding, of embracing, you know, without seeing where it's going to lead or, you know, anything like that. It needs just to, just to reach out and touch someone is to con- come into contact with someone who was created in the image of God. Like, that's enough. And there are other special kinds of intimacy that people experience in marriage and um, and so on, but but we've turned we've we've what do I want to say? We've lost our focus. We think that we come into contact either to uh, to harm or to control or to gain pleasure from another person, and that's being that's being healed through. Even if you do the kiss of peace, I mean, even if, but through also coming into contact with the priest, through venerating the icons and so on, through the hand of the priest on the head during confession. I like to tell people there is no such thing as a sacrament that's performed in the church where there is no touch involved. We're being directly touched. It's a direct encounter every time. A lot can be communicated through touch that words cannot accomplish. So there's a deep meaning and there's a deep lesson here that's being taught to us that, that uh, has been lost. It's not like 
we're inviting something new. It's actually something that's been lost to our general culture and something that has been preserved in orthodoxy. So let's talk a little, just a little bit about the kissing of the hand of the priest. It's an interesting thing because, you know, we're used to a slap on the back or shaking hands or something like that, but kissing, oh, you know. So people will ask about that. And it's one of those foreign, seemingly countercultural, kind of awkward practices that can be difficult to grasp. I remember when people start thinking, start they want to become Orthodox and they see other people asking for the priest's blessing. And, you know, you and I had this conversation recently. How should I do this, Father? Just tell me how to do it and I'll do it. And, of course, at first it's kind of like, should I or shouldn't I, you know, but you realize it's just, it's a natural part of our relationship. Um, and it's been normal for generations. But I want to talk a little bit about the ancient practice of why in the world do we kiss the priest's hand? And you could say, it like, in a way, the real question is, why don't we kiss more people's hands? The kissing of the hand of the, the priest is not an exceptional thing. But rather, it's, it's the remnant of what was once a perfectly normal custom, showing reverence to our elders by kissing their right hands. There are certainly many people alive today in Greece who remember that the kissing of the hand was a normal and expected way to show reverence, not only to clergy, but to parents. And you'll see it in old movies sometimes, where the kids will kiss the, the hand of, you know, a, of a parent or, or even like a, of a... Of royalty, you know, things like that. When Catholic Church, he kissed the bishop or pope. Yeah. But it's something, it's just, it's an, it's an old way. It's an old way. So, it was a way of showing reverence to parents, grandparents, godparents, and others in authority over us by holding a revered position in our lives. And the disappearance of this custom is part of the disintegration of traditional Christian society, which was based on hierarchy. So there was respect for authority um, and humility and based, of course, on love, which does not exist without respect. So when we kiss the hand of the bishop or the priest, we're not showing respect to the person of the... The the goal is to... Stroke Father Jeremiah's ego. I really like you, Father. Therefore, I'm going to kiss your hand. But it's honoring the office of the priesthood. The, the priest is like a living, is, is to be a, like a living icon. I know we're all called to. But in our, in our parish, like I am to you in a way as Christ is to his disciples you know, to his flock, the apostles and disciples that were surrounding him during his life. And so that structure has been preserved in the church. Or I am to you as a shepherd is to a flock. So the priest as a man is a sinner, but the priest as priest represents Christ and he's an icon of Christ. Though his hand is unworthy, yet it touches the most holy things, the precious body and blood of the Lord. So these hands are used to perform the great, the sacred mystery. We call it the mystery of the body and blood of Christ. 
just a second. And furthermore, despite his unworthiness, in his holy ordination, he's received the grace of God to impart spiritual gifts and blessings. So why would we deprive ourselves of the blessings of our Lord himself by not seeking the priest's blessing? And so I remember Father James would say, like not everyone would ask for his blessing, the, my predecessor. Um, and I don't know why. I mean, part of it is because he, he didn't really push it. And it's not, you know, it's not like we're going around saying, you need to kiss my hand or something like that. But it is uh, the cultivation of a, of a culture of reverence. And he, I saw one of our older couples would, would, would always go and ask for his blessing. And uh, he said, they're very, they're very um, fervent about getting the blessing because they really believe that they receive something from it. I thought that's really, you know, sweet. It was heartfelt. So, um, what's your thought? All I was going to say, I was just told, like, you're kissing the hand of Christ. Yeah. Don't think of it as far when as you prayer. when you become ordained, there's an old saying that the hands of the priest are not his own hands anymore, but the hands of Christ, because they're used to to accomplish the holy mysteries. And so you're right; it is like venerating an icon, you know. Like a priest is an icon of Christ. Like a priest is an icon of Christ. It's like touching the robe is like touching Jesus. Yeah, like touching Christ's robe when he was going through the crowds, yeah. and we're all kind of at that moment we're we're kind of remembering the woman with the issue of blood to who reached from within the crowd and touched the hem of Christ's garment. You know, it's an act, it's expression of faith. So when would we ask for a blessing? And this is one of the things. So not just should we do it. Okay. I mean, it is typical. It's common practice in the church. But when we typically seek the, church, the, the priest's blessing whenever we greet or bid farewell. You see me for the first time. My father, your blessing. You say, Father, bless or your blessing, you put your right hand on top of your left, um, and uh, the priest will make the sign of the cross, and he uses what's called the, the Christogram, and it's, from his perspective, it's the first and last letters of the name Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos. And so when he does this, in, it's the Greek letters, it's like you were saying, giving, basically offering Christ's blessing. I was saying the other day that the icon of Christ. Yeah. I was holding my, my fingers like that. It's like, okay, that's... Yeah. And so it's it's hard to see, but it's I. Um, it looks like uh, C, but it's not C. It's actually Sigma. And then X, he. The, and then if you bend this one, it's a little, you know, it's another Looks like a C, but it's a, a sigma. Yeah, I so I C X C Jesus Christ. So it's it's even a reminder of the priest. So we don't do like you'll notice, and I I'm not here to comment on Roman Catholic practices, but it's interesting that they do this like flat-handed blessing. I mean, it's still the sign of the cross, but uh, we've preserved the practice of doing the Christogram, which is showing that it's Christ who's blessing you're receiving, and so. The, the priest will make the sign of the cross over you and place his hand on top of your hands and then you just kiss the top of his hand like when you're venerating an icon. And uh, when you're seeing one another for the first time, it's appropriate to, to ask 
Father, bless, or your blessing, or bless. You know, you're, you'll hear different kind of different approaches. In Greek, it's just evlogison, which means bless, blessing. You know, like bless me. People will say sometimes, but Father, bless, and uh, or no, evlog, evlogite. That means basically, you bless me, bless me. It's it's and it's a loving thing. Bless me now. Yeah, but just bless your blessing, you know, Father bless. Father, one question. Yeah. What would the language of our church be, like the Antiochian church? Is it huh? Syrian? Or uh, Arabic. Arabic, Arabic. Yeah, Arabic. Mm-hmm. So, Father bless, the priest will ask, will offer, we're going to make the sign of the cross, you kiss the hand, and then um, and then you carry on with your, it's just like saying hi, you give some, giving someone a hug or something like that, or a handshake. And then, if you've been together for a while, then you know on the way on the way out, you've like shared a meal together, or you're leaving a conversation. It's appropriate to ask for the Father your blessing before you leave, you know, and you don't need to be weird about it. And can kind of observe what other people are doing too, you know, and see get a get a sense of how people who have been around for a while what they do and kind of you know imitate their behaviors. Carl came by. Yeah, so that's what we two weeks ago. Yeah, I came by. Father bless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Leave, so. Yeah. So um, we kiss the right hand when we receive the prayer of absolution after we've had confession or other prayers, but we don't kiss the priest's hand when we receive holy communion. He's holding the chalice and, and the spoon, and so you don't want to lean in and hit headbutt the chalice, and also. After you've received the holy mysteries, when that comes for you all, you also wouldn't want to spread it onto anything else by kissing, you know, an icon or a hand after immediately after receiving holy communion. But this is one of the common practices of the church: is just to to receive the blessing of the priest, and when there is a sense of love and reverence and trust, it becomes something that's really beautiful, you know, in the community. Not a way of controlling people's lives. Bow down before me or something like that, you know. But me realizing, like, as a man who has no strength and no power and no authority, really, other than the ability to attempt to love other people as, as I've received love from Christ, then I want to convey some level of affection and love in as much as I'm able to the people of our community. And now the true test, though, I will tell you, is what happens if you bump into me in public? You know? Will you come up to me in the grocery store and say, Father, bless? Some people have passed that test. One time, I walked into Trader Joe's and I saw someone down at the end of the aisle and they saw me and they went and took off. And so, you know, you get a little nervous sometimes. People get a little nervous. That's okay. I didn't confront this person about it. I just, I let the silence tell its own tale. But, um, but anyway, it is typical though, when you see an Orthodox priest or bishop, you don't see many bishops, you know, around at Safeway or Trader Joe's, but, you know, to ask for their blessing. Anytime. Why? I mean, it's like if you see a friend that you love and you're going to 
Go, go up to them and give them a hug. You're not going to go... You know what I mean? Like, seeing, you know what I mean? Act awkward. It's just, it's so natural. And I'm, I see myself. I know I'm a young man. And so, I mean, someone told me recently, Father, you're not that young, actually. But, but, but I, for me to reach out and touch you is like to come in to, as an expression of love. And again, of what words cannot convey is so natural as a priest. And so that should be a, a natural movement in the life that we have together. Here at church, if I were to come visit your home, or if we were to bump into each other out in public. And then if people see that, well, first of all, who cares what anyone thinks? Who cares? And if they have a misperception about it, either they're going to live with that misperception by their own choice, or they're going to what was that? You, I noticed, like, if they really care about what's understanding, you know, rather than jumping to their own conclusions, then there might be an opportunity for conversation. Otherwise, all of us, all of us have unaddressed issues that are like burning coals in our hands, you know, that we're just holding on to. It's up to us to decide whether we want to release them. So don't worry too much about what other people think. Look, you're, you're becoming an Orthodox Christian, which basically means you're willing to die for your faith. This is the church of the martyrs. So little things like little natural acts of love and piety, I mean, that are healing the broken and disordered relationships that we would have. This is what the world needs. Proper touch, proper reverence and respect and honor for one another. Okay? You should greet so, each other with Christ is in our midst. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and if you see each other at the grocery store, Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. You know, not, not, you know what I mean? Or Christ is risen. Yeah, you don't have to make a make a scene, but sure. You know. So anyway, all right, we're going to end there because I'm going to do a little special time with Jamie and Heidi to prepare for their baptism. I want to end with a with a specific prayer though. Today. So stand up with me. And this is called. It's a prayer for. The acceptance of God's will. It's a beautiful prayer by Metropolitan Philaret, St. Philaret of Moscow. Well, let's end with this one. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Lord, I know not what to ask of Thee. Thou alone knowest what my true needs are. Thou lovest me more than I myself know how to love. Help me to see my real needs, which are concealed from me. I dare not ask for either a cross or a consolation. I can only wait on Thee. My heart is open to Thee. Visit and help me for Thy great mercy's sake. Strike me and heal me, cast me down and raise me up. I worship in silence thy holy will and thine inscrutable ways. I offer myself as a sacrifice to thee. I put all my trust in thee. I have no other desire than to fulfill thy will. Teach me how to pray. Pray thou thyself within me. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace.